It was mid-November in 2008. About 10 college students went up into the hills above Santa Barbara and had a bonfire at an old abandoned estate that was known to many as a place for gatherings. And as their bonfire came to an end, they tidied up and they put the fire out and they departed. But as it turns out, they failed to fully put the fire out and that was a night with a wind condition that locals know as sundowner winds, where warm, dry, heavy winds came and they brought the embers back to life. And then the flames were brought to the bush, the brush, the bushes all surrounding, and the brush lit up. And if you know the geography of Santa Barbara, the town is surrounded by hills on one side and the ocean on the other. And pretty soon, the hills that rise above the whole town were glowing red. And it was called the Tea Fire because the estate that was abandoned used to be called the Tea House. 210 homes were destroyed, including the home of Steve Martin. And the final structure that was lost to that terrible fire was an Episcopal monastery called Mount Calvary, a beloved place. So my family and I were living in Santa Barbara then. I was an, an associate at an Episcopal church in town, and our daughter Zoe was only two years old. And we were given warning because where we lived, our home was on the second floor of an old wooden bungalow in a neighborhood that was in between downtown Santa Barbara and the foothills. And we were close enough to where those hills were that if the wind had blown in the direction of our home, it could have come in and ruined and destroyed the whole neighborhood. So we were given the warning that we had only a few hours to go and collect anything that we wanted to collect. And then once we had done that, the whole neighborhood was to be evacuated. Nobody could return until the fire was over. So Sarah was already off with our daughter and at, she was at the place where we were gonna camp out and I asked one of my colleagues if I could borrow their station wagon, thinking I would fill it up with as much stuff as I could haul out of there as possible. And I rushed over to the house. I ran up those outside steps and walked up to the threshold and opened the door, looked into the apartment. And suddenly I realized I didn't need any of that. Sure enough, I collected some boxes with uh, documents and papers, some clothing, and we had just gotten a flat screen TV, <laughs> still had the box, collected that, brought it. By the way, we still have that flat screen TV, it still works. But I realized I didn't really need any of those things to live. It was a total surprise, and it was liberating. Every day we place value on things, or we accept the value that other people place on things. We live in a world where everything has a value assigned to it, and sometimes the values that are assigned are pretty arbitrarily assigned. And one of the crucial parts of a Christian life is learning to value things correctly, to see things through the eyes of God where value is not the way that the world values. 
The gospel reading today from start to finish, I would say, is a challenging gospel reading. A lot is covered in there, and if I had a much longer amount of time, I would love to unpack all of it. But I just want to give you a lens through which that you can see what Jesus is saying, and hopefully it will help to understand where he's getting to. Because he uses some really shocking, dramatic imagery. He says, if you... If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to go and to meet your salvation maimed with only one hand or only one eye or only one foot. That is of a higher value to enter into salvation than to have two hands. It's a dramatic thing to say, but it's a statement of value. And I think it's important to say that, don't misunderstand it, the drama that he uses is for the purpose of waking us up and getting our attention, but the drama is not the point. It's the emphasis on the point, that there is a higher value at play. Now, regarding money, which is the currency that holds value that we've assigned value too. There was a wonderful statement that the treasurer of my former church used to like to say. It was a good reminder. He used to say, we are to love people and use money, not the other way around. Money, of course, has value, but not as an end in itself. Humans have value as ends in themselves. Money only has value because of what it can do, what it can unlock, the potential that is stored up in it. Richard Rohr points out that St. Paul is often misquoted for something that he wrote about money. People say that St. Paul said that uh, money is the root of all evils. But actually, the text says in 1 Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evils. Money is not an end in itself. It is a means to better ends when we use it and value it properly. Now, I'm speaking about all of this um, because you may have noticed this time of year we talk about stewardship. And there are many churches that will declare a certain Sunday is Stewardship Sunday, and that turns out to be the lowest attended Sunday. We didn't do that, but today is the day that I chose to dedicate the sermon to share a few words about stewardship and what that means for us here in the life of our community. And so, first of all, if this word stewardship, which is very familiar with people within the church, um, it maybe is a little too familiar, and I want to remind you what it's about, what it means. So, first of all, the word itself, stewardship, specifically, is about taking care. That's why we call it what we call it. And it's essential. If it weren't for the giving of our community and the act of making pledges now that then will be fulfilled next year, if it weren't for that, we wouldn't know what we could plan for, for all that we will hope to do and be next year. And it's worth pointing out that at St. John's, we are very fortunate that generations before us have been extremely generous. They built this beautiful sanctuary that we get to enjoy, that lifts our spirits and the spirits of all who get to come into this space 
And even the people who maybe never has, but they have been in here, but they're watching online, even right now. We also have an endowment. And thanks to the endowment, that helps us do all that we're able to do in a regular year. But we dream of a time where we wouldn't need to rely on that so much. As it is right now, one way of thinking about it is that roughly speaking, all of us who pledge are having our pledges matched dollar for dollar, which is a, a pretty remarkable thing. And so we have to do our matching. Our part of that is important. And so what the people here will decide to pledge is what we will know that we can budget for for next year. And so the amount does matter. And I will say there's a big variety, a big span of amounts that are pledged. And as important as that is, because I want to be able to see us able to do what we need to do next year, I also like to emphasize what I think is even more important to me is the number of pledges that are made. Because every single pledge, whatever the value, is a sacred choice. It's a sacred thing. It's a commitment that somebody has made. And there are some people who maybe have never made a pledge. And to make that pledge, perhaps for the first time, is an important and beautiful thing. I don't know what percentage of our membership pledges. I would guess it's, it's most, 75 or 80 percent, something in that range. But I would love if it was 100 percent. And some people worry, well, what if, what if something happens next year and I can't fulfill my pledge? We actually plan for that. We, we have a line item in the budget for pledges that won't come in because life happened. Now, that's not to encourage everybody to have life happen next year. But what it is, is it means there's no reason to not pledge, even if there is some uncertainty, just to do so faithfully. And now, spiritually, we are taught in the Old Testament that the tithe is the standard. The tithe is, is the, you know, what is asked of us. And what, the, what is the tithe? Technically, that is 10% of the blessing, the material income that has come to give of the, the first dollar of every 10. So one out of every 10, 10%. We actually tithe as a church in the sense that we have committed every, um, for, for everything that is pledged, 10% we give to outreach. So one out of every $10 that gets pledged gets to go and we pass that blessing along. Well, so 10%, that's intimidating to a lot of people. I know that there are people who do tithe 10% here. But I know for many, like I said, I think I saw some people nodding your heads, it is intimidating. But let me share with you, even if you're not going to do a 10% tithe, is a good thing to think proportionally. I think proportionally about our own gift. I challenge you, I encourage you, think about what you do give and then think about what percentage of your income, whatever that may be, that turns out to be. For Sarah and me, our goal is to tithe and we haven't got to the point where we're giving 10% yet, but every year we get closer. We increase and we get closer to 10% with that as our goal. And we're getting close. 
It's a remarkable thing to live in that way, a way where generosity is practiced and it is just central to your whole life and it changes everything else about your life. It becomes your way of being. It becomes your way of being freed, freed of material things, freed to value things in a more holy way than many of us so often find ourselves doing. To give meaningfully, it builds a disposition of generosity, which is a disposition also of grace. And when you give and you live a life marked by that generosity, it means that you are living with your hands open. And it turns out that only with hands open will you actually be able to receive. Amen.